I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello everyone, Stucky here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back to another episode that is brought to you by the producer of our show, James, who has been really coming through in the past couple weeks to be able to help us produce as much as we possibly can because, oh my God, with the amount of traveling that we A, have done, and B, are going to be doing, it's quite insane, considering that we leave for Japan in what? What would you say, 41 days? 41 days. 41 days. 41 freaking days. Okay, yeah. So that means that we are writing, researching, and doing everything we possibly can in order to create as many episodes ahead of time as we possibly can. So if you want access to any of the bonus stuff that we're going to be producing in that time, make sure to check out Patreon for all of those of you who are watching and or hearing this for the first time. Yeah. Also, the Italy trip, if you guys want to go on that, it is getting closer. And we still have, I think, nine spots left. We have like nine spots left. Yeah. yeah. And it's in May. It's May 11th through the 17th here. And then at the end of the month, in like a week, we have the big Peru drop that's going to be happening. So who knows how many spots are going to be just disappearing at the time that that all goes <laughs> down. Either way, we are going to be covering something here today that I've wanted to talk about for a while, but it is something that is definitely um, depressing. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is so good. This is going to be bad. Actually, before we get into the episode, we will be switching over to releasing our episodes on Mondays oh, starting next month. And we've... We were supposed to announce this like two months ago and we keep forgetting. So if you guys look for your Friday episode next month and it's not there, it will be out on Monday. So what's going to end up happening is we'll end up releasing one of the bonus episodes here from that was like a YouTube episode converted into audio for the podcast. And that will go up on a Friday and then the actual podcast episode will go up on Monday. So that's what we'll do in order to clarify that that switch when that happens. OK, but now now the for episode. the depressing stuff. Oh, my God. Gabby, I'm telling you this right now. The, the story of what happened in Warsaw, in Poland, is got to be one of those places that is, um, especially when we're talking about 1939 to 1945, this is possibly the answer to the question of when was the worst place and time to be alive in human history? And I'm not saying that with any kind of attempt of humor, but this is going to be pretty dark because this is an example of both the best and the worst possible acts in human history. This is equal parts a cautionary tale of horror, and yet somehow it is still something that is an inspirational tale of endurance and tenacity that shows us what humans and humanity are truly capable of enduring and surviving. But in order for us to show what humans are capable of enduring and surviving, that means that they're going to have to have something that they have to endure and survive. And to be honest, perhaps no city suffered more than Warsaw during World War II, because, oh my God, was this thing particularly bad. 
Guys, I'm saying this right now. This is not going to be a funny episode. It's absolutely not. This is not going to be a happy episode. But for every time that we tell one of those episodes that it's like, oh, yeah, here's the history of potatoes. Oh, yeah, here's like this dictator. But here's all this really funny stuff that he did. No, 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 no. This is um, especially with subjects that are kind of hard to look at even today. And this is because part of the belief of the show, what it is that we specifically do is we try to provide facts for history as straightforward as we can without glossing over more of the uncomfortable parts of life and history in general. But that all being said, this is your warning for those of you who may be listening that either are sensitive to these issues, perhaps have children that may be listening, or if you are perhaps triggered by things such as physical, sexual, mental, verbal abuse, or really just abuse of any kind of which there is going to be a lot of, you can and perhaps might want to leave the room or take breaks at points. Or skip the episode. Go listen to something else. We have lots of episodes. Yeah, fair warning to all of you. Like, I'm saying that outright because we have to say that every time something like this happens, just so that people are aware. I'm going to urge you right now to hang in on this because the, the material itself is incredibly valuable to learn. Unless, of course, it's causing you intense distress and you don't want to. But this is a story that is so important that we can't allow it to be forgotten. And if we never really learn from the lessons of history, it's possible that these same kinds of things could happen in the future. And that's not what we want. We're storytellers. We're people, but we're not, we're, not, we're not trying to necessarily get people to believe certain things or certain ways, but we want everyone's story in this world to be told. And if you try to forget about all the horrible things that have happened in the past, then again, you're doomed to repeat it. Exactly like one of the things that we're going to be talking about here today. So on that note, Gabby, I guess let's go ahead and get this started. And what is it that we like to do here when we, when we talk about anything in history? Context. context. You know exactly how it is that we start with, uh, with these things. So my friends, context. Yes, context. So if we're going to be zooming into Warsaw at this time, I say at this time, we're not going to be talking about immediately things in the 1930s and 40s. We need to be talking about what was Germany at the end of World War I. Because Poland as a state is not something that existed here in World War I. It, it sort of did, but Poland hadn't existed as a state for something along the lines of, say, like 200 years, I think at this point, I'm actually trying to remember when was the third partition of Poland? Like when did Poland as a state cease to exist? But that was a kingdom that was continuously getting eaten by its neighbors until ultimately it was divided between Prussia and Russia. And that's like Poland was basically split down the middle in this kind of curve between the two states. And so you had Polish people that were living in what would be Germany and Poles living in what would be Russia. And this sounds was, confusing. And not only was it confusing, it was definitely awful for a lot of those people as there were active efforts over the course of that time to depolonize the region, even over the course of history. Like the so genocide sort of, but not to the degree that you would see in World War Two. We're talking more about through lines of, say, education, among other things. Think of it. Think of it in many circumstances in similar ways to what would have happened with some of like Native Americans that would be sent to schools that would be taught like. English and like that is all. That so they, they weren't were able allowed to... to practice their culture and their language type yes. deal. And there were different places that had more leniency, but there were many different movements over the course of like the 19th century to depolonize the region. Bismarck, as an example, who I talk about all the like crazy and awesome things that he did. He was an individual that really hated the Polish. He really did. And one of his key things is that he saw them as a, a people that needed to be removed. Not like wiped out physically, but that their identity destroyed. 
So they just wanted them integrated. Yes. Specifically. And not Germ- at all at Germani- individual Germanized, culture? Germanified. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Germanified. Germanified. Ger- German, German, Believe it or not, that happens all across Europe at different points. Like I just learned about um, a group in Norway yeah. where they basically had to. The Sami. Yeah, the Sami people. Yes. Yep. And it's like a really big thing right now. Yep. It's, it, it's everywhere. Yo, it's all over the world. And people, that's the thing. When people like try to attack specific groups and people, it's like, oh, you're the ones who did that in history. No, it's been done by every kind of major group. As an example, do you have any idea? Like when we say Chinese, there is one like large ethnicity within China, which is like the Han, but there are dozens of other ethnicities to where Han Chinese only makes up something like, I'm pulling a number out of my ass. I know that I'm not going to get this right but it's like 50 to 60% of the population is Han Chinese. Everything else is other, like all these different ethnic groups that are within it. And over the course of its history, China has effectively tried to wipe out- 92%. The Han makes up over 92% of China's vast Ni- population, 92. even though it has 56 official ethnic groups. Yes, okay. So one of the reasons why that has been the case for the Han is specifically by assimilating and wiping out those other groups in order to- conform them all to become Han Chinese. Yes. Yeah, no, history is not clean. I don't know if you all have been following this, this show for a while, but it's definitely not at all. But anyway, Germany, World War I, context. Germany obviously lost the war. Its economy at this point was shattered. Its working population was decimated by the loss of so many young men and boys. And in a way, this was going to be mirrored after World War II by the Russians, who would lose so many men in that conflict that there was a certain year in the 1920s, I can't even remember what it was, but if you were a male that was born in this year, in the 1920s, you had a 33% chance that you were going to die in World War II. That's just if you were a male that was born that year, you, you had a 33% chance of dying. Is it because they just threw men at the um, yeah, they, they would front be cons- lines? Conscripted in a large amounts, starvation, disease, any number of things that happened. Russia lost an incredible amount of people in World War II. And I say that in the most awful way possible. But back to Germany, post-World War I. It is a broken, it is a defeated nation, and it is desperate for strong leadership, which is something that eventually it's going to get, just not in the way that the world is going to want. So, shortly after the war, and we're going to touch upon this briefly, there is this German officer by the name of Oskar Derlewanger. And he leads a group of 600 of his men back home in retreat after they had been stranded in defeat. And they walked back from Romania to Germany, being hunted and chased constantly. This is a guy who would be made a war hero and would end up earning a doctorate in political science, as well as being given a job as professor. But we are going to get back to him in a second, because, of course, since this is Germany post-World War I, you know the strong leader that we're talking about here. Obviously, for who takes over. It's, it's the mustache man. It's the silly little mustache Hitler. man. There you go. There you go. The no-no mustache. If this goes uh, on Mr. YouTube, it's going to be demonetized. I know. I know. God, we're talking about the Warsaw Uprising. There is no way in hell this thing is going to end up being monetized on YouTube. Absolutely no way. No way it's not. So, hey, for all of you that are watching, thank you. Right now, support us on Patreon because this is going to, that's going to hit us. But yes, this is a guy who in 1933 riles up and emboldens all the German population and the rest is, well, it's, it's downhill from there. You all, you all know exactly how that works. It really doesn't hurt that he tries to overthrow the government to gain total power. And the significant thing to notice is that when Adolf Hitler comes into power, that he was the head of the National Socialist Workers Party, 
And this is a part that confuses a lot of people and still leads to a lot of debate and problems with this day. And we're not going to really explain it all that well, because I think that I want to do a future video outright on what exactly is fascism, because people never use that term correctly. They don't use national socialist correctly. They don't understand the actual underlying political ideology and economic thought behind these things. You they mean just the think, internet just throws out buzzwords that they don't actually know the meaning of? I know, right? Crazy. I would never have expected that. Yeah. I, uh, no. What? Amazing. It's simply amazing. But yes, so in, in a way, the, the, the Nazis were socialist, but not socialist in the same way as we think of the Marxist. They were very anti-Marxist, but their socialism was something that was based off absolute state control where people are based as cogs in a machine rather than by the people. It's more so for the state. Again, I'm being very vague with my terminology here, and I'm not going to be diving into all that. But their big thing is that their, their socialism was something that was going to be based not on class, but on race. To sum it up very quickly and using, again, very open, vague terminology. When you have individuals like Adolf Hitler and those who were like-minded to him, these would be people that when put into positions of high power were typically united in their view on this. It was almost a prerequisite to become one of Hitler's favorites. The Nazi form of socialism was based on the idea that the German people and the Aryans in general were superior. Not only were they superior, but it was their duty, not, not just like their right, but it was their purpose from their perspective to remove the lesser races. And they referred to those that they hated and despised as Untermensch, literally translated as lesser men. And that term would be something that would be applied to black people if you were mixed race of some kind. Um, it was primarily re used to refer to people that were Jewish, Polish, the Romani people, the varying Slavic people, the physically ill and mentally disabled, LGBT, political dissidents, literally anyone that was not the idealized version of a German in their mind was something that this could be applied to. If there was ever really a true and actual situation where a politician would rally their entire nation to hate people, this is definitely that. And there will be multiple examples of things like that in history, but this is one of the big ones that everyone loves to harken back to. So, okay, obviously people know how Germany works and everything is going at this time. By 1939, the German war machine had built itself up into a juggernaut. Would remember if we, if you go back to the episodes where we talked about with the um like the Chicago World Fair. Remember we did that one, the 1893 one. Yep, that was a more fun and happy episode than everything that we're talking about today. The Germans, even back then, were very eager to show off what their artillery, their weapons, their technology could do, and the Polish knew this. They knew that Germany was for years building up their numbers near their borders, but when Hitler had decided to invade on September 1st, 1939, no one really knew what it was that he had in mind. Like, they knew that he was going to invade, but they didn't know what the extent of it was going to be. And it was Hitler's own idea, not any kind of realization of any pre-1933 Weimar plans to invade and partition Poland, to annex Bohemia and Austria and create satellite or puppet states that were economically subordinate to Germany. No, um, the subjugation, suffering, and inhumane treatment that would follow were not a, uh, that wasn't a bug in the system that Hitler planned. That was a feature. That was the goal. See, the Germans at this time came in from the West, but two and a half weeks later, 
And I think that I would like to cover overall the the invasion of Poland and how that all went down. But that would be a very specific and in-depth episode. The situation gets worse because literally, again, two and a half weeks later, Russia works out an end to its own five-month undeclared war that it's been fighting with Japan because it's had this ongoing border dispute over there in Siberia. And it goes and invades Poland from the east. What a lot of people conveniently forget at this time when they try to... um Rewrite history? Rewrite, yeah, rewrite history or like... um. Make themselves feel better about what they believe in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you, you see a number of um uh, of of totalist, tanky, like hardline communist types that are are fervently like they defend Russia during the time. I can time. see the comment section now. Yeah, completely forgetting that it's like yeah, uh, Russia was outright going and invading and annexing and things in the exact same way as Germany was doing at this time. I mean, what it was doing with the Baltic states, what it did with Finland, what it did with Poland here. When did it stop? Being fair game for a bigger country to just go, I want that and just take it. Like, when did we stop bigger countries World from just War deciding? II. World War Two, literally. So World now War II. we can't just say, "Hey, that's a really nice island." We have to ask permission, or yeah. Oh, and then works with international speed because people are way less, um, usually way less hands off now than they were back in the day, where people could do more of what they wanted. I guess at the cost of the lives of other people. It really varies. It really varies. So a lot of people seem to forget that for years, Russia was actually a ally of Germany, if you want to call it that, and then betrayed them, or rather not Russia betrayed them, but Germany betrayed Russia with the disastrous Operation Barbarossa in June of 1941. And so on September 3rd, Britain and France had declared war on Germany, but there wasn't really anything that they could do at this time to help the people of Poland in any meaningful ways, and it wouldn't be for years, right? The Americans wouldn't become involved until December of 1941 with the attack of Pearl Harbor. So Poland was left on its own for literally years. And they became set upon on all sides by hostile forces that were vastly superior to their own, unable to receive aid or military assistance or help from their allies. And they began to be occupied for the rest of the war by foreign armies. And they would spend six long years suffering from this. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So, okay. It's time to kind of get into this. And I said that we were going to be talking about the stuff with the invasion of Poland. There is something we can go a bit more in depth with this, but we're going to need to cover this leading into the, the conflict and, of course, talking about Warsaw itself. So from the first day of the invasion, the German Air Force, or the Luftwaffe, this would attack civilian targets and columns of refugees along the roads to terrorize the Polish people. Anything to disrupt communications and target Polish, Polish morale, anything to break them apart. The Luftwaffe would during this time kill anywhere between six to 7,000 Polish civilians during the bombing of Warsaw. And then by the 12th of September, all of Poland west of the Vistula River had been conquered except for the isolated Warsaw. And then the Polish government, led by President Ignacy Mosicki, which again, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of, and high command, led by Marshal Edward Ritz Smigley, they left Warsaw in the first days of the campaign headed southeast, reaching Lublin on the 6th of September. By the end of the war, they would end up being exiled to London to try and somehow regain control of their country from a distance. But it's really kind of an impossible situation the Poles were placed in. And again, this was by design. By the 27th of September, the invasion and takeover of Warsaw had been accomplished. And for our last little bit of context, before we jump ahead all the way to 1944, we need to look at the numbers of the situation that the Poles found themselves in because, oh man, this is, this is about to get nasty. What, what is that famous, often quoted, um, uh, uh, well, quote, I guess, even though it's not necessarily a historically accurate one, sort of, like one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. It's oftentimes attributed to, um, uh, to Stalin. What quotes are you hearing? Well, it's something that's attributed to Stalin, but it's like there's no actual proof that he said precisely that. It's just one of the things that is said that he said. Sounds like something he might have said. Oh, considering the amount of people that he had killed? Yeah, absolutely. So here's the thing. Number-wise, the number of Jewish people in Poland on the 1st of September 1939 amounted to around 3.5 million people and 130,000 soldiers of Jewish descent, including individuals like Borsch Steinberg, chief rabbi of the Polish military, served in the Polish army at the outbreak of the Second World War, thus being among the first to launch armed resistance against Nazi Germany. And during the September campaign, some 20,000 Jewish civilians and 32,000 Jewish soldiers ended up being killed, while 61,000 were taken prisoner by the Germans. The majority of these did not survive. The soldiers- oh, Sorry. Yeah, you get it. How did they kill so many civilians? There were many different ways from being herded into ghettos, starved, shot. There's a lot of different ways because this was just in the beginning. Remember how many things were just being outright bombed? Like they were bombing the civilian cities. Like they were destroying these territories. There wasn't, it wasn't like a situation of coming in and, hey, stop fighting us and we won't shoot you. It was, no, they're coming in, they're shooting first and asking questions later. And then by the end of it, 61,000, again, then were taken prisoner, and the majority would not survive because they were sent off into the camps. And we haven't really gone in depth on a lot of the stuff of the Holocaust, but you know exactly what I mean when I say the camps. 
The soldiers and the non-commissioned officers who were released ultimately would find themselves in Nazi ghettos and labor camps, and they would end up suffering the same fate as other Jewish civilians in the ensuing Holocaust in Poland. In 1939, Jews constituted around 30% of Warsaw's population, which is a very large amount, a number totaling over 350,000 people. It was the largest urban Jewish community in Europe, and New York City was the only city besides that to have a larger Jewish population than Warsaw. These were people that were living very much integrated with and accepted by the rest of the Polish population, and their impact on the community was significant because in this territory, over 70% of the doctors in the city were Jewish. Like, they were the ones that were the, I guess middle class is not necessarily the right term, but these were educated individuals that were filling very crucial roles within society at that time. And so in October of 1940, German officials decreed the establishment of a ghetto in Warsaw, and the decree required that all Jewish residents of Warsaw were to move into a designated area, which German authorities would seal off from the rest of the city in November of 1940. The ghetto would end up being enclosed in a wall that was over 10 feet high, topped with barbed wire, and closely guarded in order to prevent movement between the ghetto and the rest of Warsaw. The population of the ghetto would increase by Jews that were compelled to move from nearby towns, and this was estimated to be over 400,000 Jews. German authorities would force ghetto residents to live in an area of 1.3 square miles with an average of 7.2 people per room that they had to occupy. There was a survivor from the ghetto by the name of Abraham Lewent who would later recall the following, quote, the hunger in the ghetto was so great, was so bad, the people were laying on the streets and dying. Little children went around begging. There was a famous Polish pianist by the name of Ladislaw Slipman. Again, there, I apologize. There's going to be Polish names in here that are going to be a little bit more difficult. But he was an individual who wrote this very powerful book about his experience in the Warsaw Ghetto named The Pianist. And this would later be made into an equally powerful film of the same name. And his book was an invaluable guide for the research into the story as he brilliantly and poetically portrayed what life in the ghetto was truly like. As he would later recall the children of the ghetto and how they would fit into this new archaic society with lines such as, Quote, the ghetto walls did not come right down to the road all along its length. After certain intervals, there were openings at ground level through which water flowed from the Aryan parts of the road into the gutters behind the Jewish pavements. Children would use these openings for smuggling. They were the only ones that were small enough to fit through. You could see small black figures hurrying towards them from all sides on little matchstick legs, their frightened eyes glancing surreptitiously from left to right. Then small black paws hauled consignments of goods through the openings consignments that were often larger than the smugglers themselves. Once the smuggled goods were through, the children would sling them over their shoulders and stooping and staggering under their burden, veins standing out blue at their temples with the effort, mouths open wide and gasping painfully for air, they would scurry off in all directions like scared little rats. Because yes, the only ones who could actually get in and out of the ghetto to potentially get any kind of supplies in there to feed people were children that were severely malnourished and underweight because that was the only way they were small enough to actually get through in the first place. In one of the stories from his book that so greatly illustrates the depravity of the Nazis that had, they had descended to, Slipsman was walking home one day and he saw a child push his pack through an opening in the wall and then start to crawl under through the opening to the ghetto side. But no sooner had he gotten his head and arm through the opening when the child began to scream in pain because a German soldier that was patrolling had found him and was beating him with his rifle repeatedly. 
The child's screams would only begin to get more desperate, and Slipton would struggle with all his might to help the child, but by the time he was able to get the child free, he was dead. His spine had been shattered. And in Slipton's shock, he laid the boy down as peacefully as he could and continued to walk home, traumatized for the rest of his life. These were kids that were no older than 10, carrying giant bags of food and goods that weighed literally as much or more than they did, and they were dying over. You, you would wonder why would they risk so much, and the reality of it was because they had to. There was literally no other option. In addition to the poor housing, the disease, the lack of medical care, the severe lack of food, this was the worst aspect and the primary concern for residents of the Warsaw Ghetto. Because allotments rationed out by the German civilians simply didn't suffice. And by 1941, the average Jew in the ghetto would consume only around 1,125 calories per day. By the time of 1944, 200. That's it. Less than 10% of what the average person needs on the daily. The Germans were effectively trying to starve them out. And of course, with starvation, that means that you're even more susceptible to illness. And by this point, typhus had spread through the ghetto like wildfire, and everything was covered in lice. You had lice on your coat, lice falling out of the newspaper when you picked it up and opened it, lice on the bread that you had to shake off. Everything was covered. Disease was such a massive killer, specifically amongst those who survived living on the street. There was a constant fear of getting sick, as modern medicine was just really hard to come by. The only ones who had anything remotely close to a normal quality of living in the Warsaw Ghetto were those who were already rich before and had money to pay guards to just look the other way while they would bring in cartloads of goods. Bars and cafes would stay open as best they could, and Slipman would work for some time as a house pianist in one of these small cafes. He had been the last Polish musician to have his music played over the radio before the invasion by the Germans. So he both saw the best and the worst of the conditions behind the wall. The kids running bags under the drains or thrown over the wall, that was for subsistence. That is the, the bare necessity of what they needed in order to survive. That was families getting food smuggled to them by sympathetic co-workers or neighbors from the time before the war. That's it. Another thing to note was that a certain number of people in the thousands who weren't even Jewish had their entire lives ripped off and moved just to make space for the Jews in the ghettos. As an example of this for the secondary victims of the events taking place here, they were the normal Polish people who happened to already live in this area that the Nazis wanted to create this giant human suffering cage to be. Like they already lived there, so they just ended up being blocked up in this area already, or their home was basically demolished and they lost all of it and were kicked out. And to be honest, looking at the situation, I don't know whether to say what situation would be worse because it depends upon the individual person. They could be stuck there. They could be moved out. Like sometimes they were moved into condemned buildings or dangerous neighborhoods. Other times they were simply just thrown out onto the streets and told leave or be shot. That's it. That's all that could happen to them. And the Poles were deported in massive numbers in this case and sent to work in labor camps in Germany or taken to concentration camps. Around 2 million people were transported back to Germany to work as slaves and... A lot of them would end up dying there. Lepanka was the term that was used back then. It was one of the methods that was practiced by the Nazis in order to catch prisoners for labor. What it essentially means is that they would round up or catch random Polish men out in the streets or anywhere and then just send them off to the concentration camp 
or if they were luck lucky, it was for a daily work site in and around Warsaw. Because, you know, on occasion, there would be some random project or thing that they would have to do. Like, as an example, oh, what we just talked about, Gabby, the ghetto? Yeah, that was the first one. That was literally the first project that the Nazis had the Polish complete was to build the ghetto wall by their own hand. Like, it was the equivalent of a massive wall of digging your own grave. Several hundred Wehrmacht brothels, for which the local non-German women were forcibly recruited into, these would operate throughout the Reich, where they would have to serve the soldiers. In contrast to Nazi policies in occupied Western Europe, the Germans did not give two shits about anything that was going on with the Poles, and they would treat them with intense hostility, and all Polish state property and private industrial concerns were taken over by the German state. Poland was effectively plundered and subjected to extreme economic exploitation throughout the war period. This was only the beginning, though. Because under this would begin the Lebensraumplan. Around 200,000 Polish children would be kidnapped by the Germans to be tested for racial characteristics that would make them suitable for Germanization. What the hell does that mean? They had sufficient enough look quality, blood. God, how do I even begin to explain this? Um, let's say that you had a Polish child and that Polish child was a, let's say it was a 10-year-old that was tall for their age. You know, they were tall, fairly good looking. Uh, they had Germanic features that could be attested to. Perhaps they had blue eyes. Perhaps they had blonde hair. Something that they wanted for that ideal Aryan stock. So you needed both, or could you have one or the other? One of the like, just if you fit some of the criteria, because you, it's you're not going to get everything of the exact type. You're not going to. Sounds like that's what they wanted. They wanted it. If they found it, they would take it. That's the point, and they would. They kidnapped hundreds of thousands of children specifically for this purpose, trying to they they would it, they would go and take these children, and then they would send them off, but like to German families where they would be raised. As Germans. What happened if they didn't have enough German features to be Germanized? Then they wouldn't be taken or they would end up dying in some way or the other. That's it. When you say some way or the other. Because from all the ways that we've listed here so far, from the concentration camps to being stuck in the ghettos to be, being just outright killed and beaten with a rifle while trying to escape through a hole. There's any number of ways that a child could have died. I told you all when we were going into this episode that it was not going to be a clean thing. This is not, this is not an easy episode. What about me? Can I dip out? Nope, nope. You can't dip out here. Um, I need you here for, honestly, moral support, reaction, and everything else that is going on. Because if it's just me sitting here going like, hey, guys, uh, on this date, so-and-so happened and everything was horrible. I need someone else here to share this with me. I can't, I've, there's nothing I can really say unless I ask a question. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I also just want to cry. Yeah, because it's so. usually then following up with something that is even more horrifying as we explain it. Like, remember all those children that were kidnapped? And you think like, oh, hey, they went on to become at least Germans. They survived, right? Yes. Yeah, only around 15 to 20% of those ended up going back to Poland after the war. The rest either died or just disappeared off the fate, like face of the earth. No one really knows. They, like, entire peoples were lost during that time. Yeah, I know you're, you're blinking at me rapidly here, but like that, that's, that's the reality of it. You don't really know. And we haven't even gotten into the program that occurred in Sweden during that time. Oh my God. 
there was a whole thing for specifically recruiting Swedish men and women for breeding. Because like blonde eyed or like blonde hair, blue eyed stock, that whole, that whole thing. Yeah. Willingly recruiting or kidnapped like they've been Both. doing. Both. Willing would come from the fact that if you were a woman that agreed to participate in this program because they wanted German officers, and I'll, I'll explain this briefly for anyone not aware. Germans back during World War II had a breeding program where if you were like a Swedish woman that was blonde hair, blue eyed, et cetera, when you were healthy, uh, they would pay you to breed with German military officers where they would, like your children from them would be 100% taken care of by the state. You would receive a stipend, you receive a house, you receive food, you receive everything. And people agreed to do that? And people agreed to do it, yeah. Yeah. Because for some, they were economically desperate that they had to. Others genuinely believed in the cause as it was. Yeah. There are, I can't remember who it was, and I know that in the comment section of YouTube, there's going to be a... I don't think this is going to make it to YouTube, babe. I don't know, but someone's going to put it in there. There is a famous Swedish singer that is one of these, one of these children that was born from these programs. You can look it up right now if that's the case, but just literally look up famous Swedish singer from German breeding program. Which sounds like such a weird thing to say, but that, that, is, that is a thing. I just, when you hear breeding program, you think racehorses. Oh, the, it, was, think, it was racial, all right. That is true. Is it Annie Fred Lingstad? That might be it. I don't remember a if that was A singing mega popular music group, ABBA. She was born because ABBA. of the Levisborn program in Norway. Yes. Yes. So Norwegians and Swedes, they, they, that happened. Yeah. For them. Yeah. Not, 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 a, not a clean thing at all. So from July 22nd until September 12th, 1942, German SS and police units assisted by auxiliaries would carry out mass deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto to the Treblinka Killing Center. And this was 84 kilometers or 52 miles away from Warsaw. During this period, the Germans would deport around 265,000 Jews from Warsaw to Treblinka. And they killed approximately 35,000 Jews inside the ghetto during this operation. Because rather than fill out the daily quotas for deportation, Jewish council leader uh, Zizernikal would just end up committing suicide on July 23rd. Like, I I'm saying that stumbling over it because A, the name, and B, because this guy just didn't want to do it anymore. Like, you had the daily quota for, like, who he would have to say, like, hey, you're getting deported. You have to leave. You have to go do this. And rather than having to deal with that fate, he just killed himself. Yeah, I don't think there's any way in hell this is going to be able to be monetized on YouTube. It's not <laughs> there, going up. No, I don't think we can. I don't think we can. Maybe what, what this episode is going to be. Like, we're going to have this. Is it like what? Maybe go up on Patreon? Unlisted. We can put it up on YouTube unlisted. And we, people on Patreon can have access to it, maybe. Maybe? We can try. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's no point in us even having this filmed right now. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Either way. Every day, the Jewish population of the ghetto was suffering the greatest kind of horrors, injustices, indignities, inhumane treatment, everything you can imagine, but still, they refused to die without a fight. In 1943, small arms began to be smuggled in after the events of the previous purge and deportations. The Nazis tried to burn the city down for this and other perceived grievances against the Jews, and people now knew that they were going to be sent off to death and not just some faraway work camp. They knew if they got on those trains, they would almost surely die. So, in secrecy and in silence, the Poles began to organize. The AK, the, uh, the Polish abbreviation meaning the Home Army, was the primary means of resistance during this time, and the AK would consist of Poles that were both Jewish and Gentile. They would fight and die together for the common good of their people, doing everything they possibly could. So on April 19th, 1943, a new SS and police force appears outside of the ghetto walls, intending to liquidate the ghetto and deport the remaining inhabitants to be forced into forced labor camps in the Loveland district. Spurred by the ghetto resistance unit known as the Jewish Combat Organization, ghetto inhabitants would offer organized resistance in the first days of the operation, inflicting casualties on these very well-armed and equipped SS and police units. And they would continue to resist deportation as individuals or in small groups for weeks before the Germans would end the operation on May 16th. The SS would deport approximately 42,000 Warsaw Ghetto survivors that were captured during the uprising to the forced labor camps at Ponitoa and Traniki and to the Lublin Majnik concentration camp. At least 7,000 Jews would end up dying fighting or hiding in the ghetto while the SS and police would send another 7,000 to the Dreblinka Killing Center. It's not clean. And we're going to skip ahead at this point by a year. And by this time, early 1944, obviously the whole invasion into Russia had happened, and they had switched sides and were fighting with the Allies against the Nazis. And they were in contact with both the British and Polish officials and said that they would pull up to Warsaw and help the Polish liberate themselves from German occupation. That's what they said, though. What they did, in reality, was push all the way over to the Vistula River, which runs down the eastern edge of Warsaw, and they know what they did? What'd they do? Nothing. Why? They stopped. The Poles, seeing all this, took the opportunity with optimism and decided, hey, we're going to break out. We're going to do this. We're going to free ourselves. We're going to stage an uprising before the Russians come and sweep the Nazis out so that we can take ourselves to freedom. They wanted to have an active hand in their own liberation so that they would have more strength at the negotiation table when it came time for Poland to regain control of their country. Or at least that was what was supposed to happen. In reality, Joseph Stalin was going to be committing an act that was truly going to make him what is properly considered one of the most evil men in history. He specifically had the army wait. And then wait. And then wait longer. They didn't cross the river. The Poles didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to make of all this. In reality, what happened is that Stalin wanted to let the Polish population become as weak and 
desperate and as downtrodden as possible before he could come in and just take over Poland and not let it go, which had been his plan all along. He wanted to let the people fight and die as much as possible, to starve themselves, to weaken their own base as much as they could so that he could just sweep in at their weakest moment and take everything. And the situation came to a head on the 13th of July, 1944, as the Soviet defensive crossed the old Polish border. The Soviet forces were approaching Warsaw, and Soviet-controlled radio stations called for the Polish people to rise up in arms. And at this point, the Poles had to make a decision. Either initiate the uprising in the current difficult political situation and risk a lack of Soviet support, or fail to rebel and face Soviet propaganda describing the home army as impotent failures or worse, Nazi collaborators and then end up getting punished after the war. They feared that what would happen is that if Poland was liberated by the Red Army, the Allies were going to ignore the Polish home government that was in London at the time in the aftermath of the war and that there would be nothing they could do. And the urgency for a final decision on strategy increased as it became clear that after a successful Polish-Soviet cooperation in the liberation of Polish territory, like an Operation Ostrobrama, Soviet security forces behind the front line would end up shooting or arresting Polish officers and forcibly conscript any lower-ranked soldiers into the Soviet-controlled forces. Oh, that's right, Gabby. What they did is that if they came into a territory and they found, a, uh, like, let's say you had a force of 100 Polish soldiers that were fighting against the Nazis, the Soviets would come in and be like, hmm, okay, these are your 10 officers that are leading you? Shoot them. Hey, you 90 men that are left, you're now in the Red Army. What? Yes. Yeah, they did that. They would forcibly conscript because they didn't want any kind of higher-ups. If you were an intellectual, if you were a government leader, if you weren't communist, they didn't want you. And even if you were communist, if you weren't their communists that were going to support them, they didn't want you. They were going to murder you and take over your men. That's precisely what they did. And so the home army forces of the Warsaw District numbered between 20,000 and 49,000 soldiers. Other underground formations would also contribute, estimating from around 2,000 in total to 3,500 men, including those from the National Armed Forces and the Communist People's Army, and most of them had trained for several years in partisan and urban guerrilla warfare, but they lacked experience in prolonged daylight fighting. The Poles had to act quickly. And so at 5 p.m. local time on August 1st, 1944, the uprising would officially commence. The decision was a strategic miscalculation, though, because under-equipped resistance forces were prepared and trained for a series of coordinated surprise dawn attacks. In addition, although many units were already mobilized and waiting at assembly points throughout the city, mobilization of thousands of young men and women was really hard to hide. Like, you can't conceal that very easily, which means they're going to be spotted. And then the fighting was going to be fierce. And this was going to be a fight for survival at its purest. There was no prisoners in the scenario. If you, if you surrendered to the Germans, you were shot. There, there was no way that that was going to happen. The first four days were absolute chaos, and small pockets of the city were taken by Polish forces. To add to this, one of the greatest failures of the entire Allied war effort would take place at the same time when they essentially refused to supply the Poles via airdrop. The American excuse was that it was too risky to make flights from Italy to Poland and that Stalin, who had already allowed Allied planes to land in Russia, denied those same planes from flying aid missions over the Polish skies while his armies were in the country. 
they wouldn't let him. FDR became really nervous at this point about pissing off Stalin because Stalin's troops were doing the majority of the fighting and dying on the eastern front of the war, and he did not want Stalin to pull support when the Allies had just landed at Normandy and begun to take back Europe. He did allow one airdrop to take place, though, and it would happen shortly after the actual uprising on August 4th. But that's it. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Soviet Union did not give permission to the Allies for use of its airports during that supply operation, and thus the planes were forced to use bases in the United Kingdom and Italy, which reduced their carrying weight and the number of sorties that they could fly. You simply did not have the supplies, you didn't have the fuel, you didn't have the things necessary to be able to drop off large amounts of goods. The Allies' specific request for the use of landing strips made on the 20th of August was denied by Stalin on the 22nd of August. He referred to the resistance as a handful of criminals. U.S. airplanes didn't even take part in the airdrops, though the U.S. did provide much of the supplies, which totaled 104 tons. This was mostly in the form of munitions and general supplies. Although German air defense over Warsaw itself was almost non-existent, around 12% of the planes, which was around 296 planes in total taking part in the operations, ended up being lost because they had to fly a thousand miles out over heavily defended enemy territory and then back over the same route from British airstrips. Most of the drops were made during night and at the height of no more than one to 300 feet high. They didn't even have parachutes. They were literally just chucking things out the back of the plane. This was a ridiculously low altitude for dropping supplies, even by today's standards. And there was no parachutes. They, they would just land with incredibly poor accuracy and smash apart. And this left many of the ones that were parachuted, or at least that were dropped back, just stranded behind German-controlled territory. In fact, 80% of this sole Allied airdrop landed behind not Polish lines, but German lines. So the Germans ended up seizing a whole bunch of these supplies. This was the only, quote, successful airdrop it was attempted by the Allies during the uprising. The Poles were effectively on this own. In fact, this is something that if you've ever heard the Sabaton song, Uprising, that references the Allies letting the Poles down repeatedly, this is where you would have the line that specifically states, do you remember when, when the Nazis forced their rule on Poland? 1939 and the Allies turned away. This is followed up later by saying, Spirit, soul, and heart in accordance with the old traditions, 1944. Still, the Allies turn away. Fighting street to street in a time of hope and desperation, did it on their own, and they never lost their faith. And that is the reality of the situation. There wasn't much that the Allies could do in this scenario, but it's heartbreaking nonetheless. Territory was not going to be something that was going to be gained in miles, no. This was going to be counted in terms of blocks. Streets were going to change hands multiple times over the course of a week fighting. Fighting would just go building by building by building. There was some of the worst close quarters combat in here you can imagine. In fact, the Poles put up such a fight that the U.S. military ends up taking, they, they, like the U.S. military makes training films about urban combat and tactics and mentality, specifically using the Warsaw Uprising as a golden example of how urban warfare can be done right. Because for anyone who is wondering about this, urban warfare is a vastly different beast 
from open environments. If you're fighting in fields, in plains, and valleys, and anything like this, the primary reason, plain and simple, is that it comes down to two main factors. There's a lot of structures around you, and your line of sight is completely different. Line of sight is very easy to explain, like you're chasing an enemy combatant around and suddenly they ditch into a side street or an ally, or an, or an alley, and suddenly by the time you round the corner, they could have disappeared into any number of a dozen different doorways, windows, or hiding spots waiting to ambush you. And this lack of consistent sight makes it very hard for snipers to operate as well, because you just, you can't get consistent good information about what you're doing, even in the middle of a fight. Unless they're situated perpendicular to a long street and looking down it, they're basically limited in role that they can play and they're able to get to the high ground in. Like, let's say you had a sniper that would get to a church bell that's on top of a tall building with a good view of the street. Yes, you can see things now, but guess what? You're on, you're on top of a giant church bell, which means that you're a plain target that everyone can see in the sky. And you're like, oh, hey, look, that's where all this, that little glint is coming off of this. Trying to snipe an enlisted. Yes, trying that's to snipe. literally me climbing the tower, like. Popping your head up. Boom, <laughs> just immediately getting domed. Exactly. The other aspect of urban combat surrounding structures is really a soldier's best friend or nightmare, depending upon whether you're attacking or defending. Because when you receive fire as a soldier, your training dictates that the first thing that you should do is take cover while figuring out what direction the incoming fire is coming from. But it's a lot harder to do that when you are getting shot at from above, and then you look up to see 20 or 30 windows above you, and literally any one of them could have a possible enemy in them waiting for another opportunity to like fire at you. And then you look away at the window you think it is, and then nope, they're in another one. And then you just keep on ducking between varying windows. This abundance of cover provided by urban combat sets up all kinds of opportunities for ambush and sneak attacks as well. A common tactic would be to lure an enemy into what was known as the kill box. And what happens here, in this scenario, where you've planned out your use of surrounding terrain and have positions set up on high ground, preferably on all sides, is a deadly one. What you will then have is an element of your forces go and lure an enemy into the mouth of your pre-established ambush, and once they come under fire, they can only turn and retreat, usually under withering fire and great duress. One thing about any military unit that never gets any press, but that the podcast producer can definitely attest to in this, is that as long as it takes any military element to move, it will take them twice, maybe three times as long to turn around in a confined space with no outlets. If you throw vehicles into that scenario, <laughs> uh, no, baby, you're not getting out of that. That is a kind of ambush with a very high success rate. And this is almost guaranteed to end up for the better for one looking in on the kill box rather than the one that is in the box themselves. And the Polish would set up many, many, many of these ambushes over the course of the uprising. Which brings us finally back to that guy that we mentioned here from the very beginning, Oscar Derlewanger. Last we heard of him, he'd become a professor. You know, very good stuff, very good stuff. Hero of World War I, all that great kind of thing, and he seemed to be bouncing back after the war. Well, yeah, uh, he very quickly turned anti-Semitic in the 20s, and by the time the 1930s rolled around, he became a card-carrying member within the Nazi party. And by 1934, um, well, he got busted having sex with a Red Cross aid worker who was 14 years old. And during the court case, his excuse was she lied to him about her age and soundly shot down when the truth was revealed. See, he, he assaulted her against her will, and his reputation was ruined. 
his doctorate revoked. He was no longer a hero. He was fired from his job, rightfully so. But lucky for him, he had a friend who served with him in World War I that was fairly high up in the Nazi leadership and was a longtime friend of Heinrich Himmler. This friend, Gottlob Berger, had been one of the men he led back home from Romania, and he probably felt he owed some kind of debt to Oscar and decided to help him. Berger had just promoted Oscar to Himmler, stating that he would align well with their goals and objectives, and he had no idea how true that assessment was going to become. Der Levanger is one of history's most evil men, without a doubt. And we're going to get into why. Why did he think he owed a debt to this guy of all people? He was his commander who had Doesn't led him. Doesn't matter. He had saved him. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it's what it was. He was also a card-carrying member within the Nazi party. He had the same beliefs. Okay. D- <sighs> so then it matters. It's not like it's like, you know, your, your friend that lost their way along the way. No, they had the same kind of beliefs. That's the thing. Yeah, but he was awful. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. They were both awful. That's what they wanted. Okay, valid. So, I mean, in another example of this, like in the Spanish Civil War being a catalyst to so many other events that we could talk about, Oscar was allowed a position in the Spanish Foreign Legion. Then through this connection with Berger, he was allowed to transfer in the German Condor Legion, where he would serve from 1936 to 1939 and ended up being wounded three times. Through his service in Spain, he was eventually allowed back into the Nazi party and even had his doctorate restored by the University of Frankfurt, which no doubt was done under either immense pressure from Berger or Himmler himself. And it should be noted that Oscar's public image never would recover from the charges even though his position had been reinstated. But he wasn't going back to the university at this time, so it didn't really matter. When World War II started, Der Levanger volunteered to join the Waffen-SS, and he would be accepted and then placed in command of a battalion of his own choosing. The only stipulations that Hitler had on this was that he had to choose his first group of soldiers from imprisoned poachers who had experience poaching with firearms. He wanted them to come from Bavaria and Austria, and they had to be good at tracking. Der Levanger did this, and this is why the unit became known as the Black Hunters, because most of those initial unit were literally composed of hunters before the war. Except Hitler didn't want them to hunt beasts, at least not in the way that the Germans thought of it. He wanted their skills in order to track down Jews. And after exhausting the local Austro-Bavarian illegal poachers' talent pool, Oscar would go to prison camps and find men who were convicted of rape and murder and offer to give them their freedom in exchange for their loyalty to their very death. He would take the most violent and disturbed individuals possible, arming them and pointing them at the poles. Oscar and his men were the attack dogs of the Nazis and gained a vicious reputation that even, and I say this, this is going to sound weird, earned complaints from other SS commanders for how vicious they would be. And that is saying something. The fact of the matter is, they were the most savage, the most ruthless, and the most detached of compassion and acceptance that you could possibly imagine for men. They were evil incarnate, and they were set loose to terrorize a population. And they were good at it. The Black Hunters were first assigned to secure and control a work camp in Poland in 1941, And here they had to amuse themselves by selecting random Polish and Jewish women, taking them to the officer's mess hall, and then forcing them to perform various sexual acts on the officers in attendance. Then, after they were done, Der Levanger would have them injected with strychnine, 
which was a type of poison and delight in watching them die painfully writhing on the floor. If you could be asked to describe their Levanger's look and vibe, this would be similar to Red Skull that is played by Hugo Weaving in the first Captain America movie. I mean, we're talking about evil incarnate. He resembled him in nearly every single way. Pure evil intent, no concern for human life, committed to the party, but not more than to himself. And my God, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. He straight up does look like a red skull. If you just paint, like if you removed all the red paint off of him, he looks, you know what, oh, Gabby, you know what he looks like? He looks like a Nazi version of Megamind. Almost. Like I think movie? people had to find their motivation for villains in actual villains. No, oh, no, absolutely. Seriously, look, look, look up this guy and you will see exactly what it is that I'm talking we'll about. My God. We will have him posted Patreon. on Patreon. Oh my God, it's bad. In 1942, Der Levanger and his men would take a tour through Belarus, rounding up villagers into barns and churches and then setting the buildings on fire. They would then shoot anyone who tried to escape. And you may ask, okay, why burn them mostly? Well, because they didn't want to waste ammunition. They would need that later. It was better to just burn them alive. By the time Oscar and his men had left Belarus in late 1943, they had murdered approximately 30,000 civilians, with the majority of these considering all the men who had been drafted off into war or sent into work camps. Um, most of these were women and children. They were then sent to Warsaw when the uprising started. And it was here that Oscar's men would commit even more atrocities, including tossing children into bonfires, using their bayonets on children instead of shooting them in order to save ammo. One night, the Black Hunters came across a Red Cross hospital that was treating both Polish and German patients. So instead of bothering to ask each troop who he fought for, guess what he does? He has every single one of them shot. He then takes the nurses that had been treating the soldiers and lets his men rape them for hours. He then takes them and all the doctors outside, lines them up, and hangs them all on improvised gallows, with Oscar personally kicking out the stools and bricks that they were standing on from underneath them. And again, this is done to save ammo. In another incident, the hunters would find a Jewish school with over 300 Jewish children inside, and they would blow the doors open and watch as over 600 little hands would reach into the sky, and then he would order his men to fire on them. The first children to fall were the lucky ones because Oscar would order his men to stop firing again to save ammo. And they were then ordered to finish the task with their bayonets. They would go in and burn the building to ensure that none of the kids would survive by playing dead. And this man is now set loose on Warsaw at a time when Heinrich Himmler would order the complete eradication of the Polish Jews shortly after the uprising begins. And this this is where Nazi tactics get truly ugly, as though they weren't already. They instituted a rule where for every German soldier killed, they would randomly line up 100 Jews and execute all of them. They kept their word on this too. During the Warsaw Uprising, the Polish Jews were losing the same amount of people as the United States lost on 9-11, except they lost that many people for over 60 days straight. This wasn't keeping the peace in a conquered foe's land. This was genocide. The rage of the Germans was at a fever pitch by this point, and they sent in units like the Black Hunters who just straight up murder anyone they saw. And Oscar, of course, kept doing shitty things. 
As an example of one of these, in one instance, at one point he ordered his men to march and move their tanks with Jewish poles walking in front of them as human shields. Using women and children as human shields has to be one of the most cowardly acts ever committed by any men or group of men, and it really goes to show you why even the SS were constantly making the Nazi version of HR complaints against his battalion throughout the war, because even if you want to look at someone for the purpose of eradication, that is something that besmirches their honor, if you will. And when you're officially too much for the freaking SS, that's a bit of a problem. Oscar at one point ordered one of his men to place a Polish Jew and her child on top of a tank to be a human shield, and once the tank started lurching and moving faster, the child fell off and was then run over by the tank. The sky was ripped open by her shrieks of agony and distress, and Oscar solved the problem as quickly as he could by just having her shot to stop her screaming. The man was evil, and when the dust settled on all of this, he and his men's actions during this time, history would recall it as the Wola Massacre, named after the city district which it took place. And since we've covered enough suffering to write the script for a very illegal kind of film, we're going to now focus more on the response of the Poles to this oncoming annihilation, because that's what it is. This is nothing short of incredible, inspiring, and downright insane that the Polish would do with this. To start off, during the first few days, the AK succeeded in capturing a frickin' panzer, and they used it to blow through the barriers of the local concentration camp, freeing the Jews slowly dying within. These people were convinced that they would die literally at any hour now, and suddenly a tank breaks through the wall like the frickin' Kool-Aid man, and a fellow Pole is offering them aid and handing out weapons. Some of these concentration camp survivors would immediately join the fighting. They could be easily picked out from the crowd because some of them were still wearing the white and black verdly striped prison uniforms. Like, you know, those those image of the like the, of the Holocaust victims where they're wearing those little pinstripe ones. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's what we're talking about here. They would fight harder than pretty much anyone else. And out of the 300 survivors of the, of the camp that could still physically fight by the end of it, only three of these were still alive. Three out of 300. That is 1% survival rate. They gave everything for the cause for freedom, including their own lives and everything around them. And this is the point that we should also recognize some of the most amazing fighters that the Poles had to offer, the Gray Ranks. Because the Gray Ranks were the underground paramilitary Polish scouting organization during World War II. And when we discussed learning how to shoot and basic combat drills in the Castro episode a couple weeks back, this is exactly the kind of situation that scouting organizations have intermingled with military and revolutionary aspects around the world just because of. Since its organization in 1916, scouts from the Polish Scouting and Guiding Association had taken an active part in all conflicts Poland was engaged in around this time. The Great Poland Uprising, the Polish-Bolshevik War, the Silesian Uprising, the Polish-Ukrainian War, after the German invasion of Poland in 1939, the Nazis would recognize this as a threat, and the Polish scouts and guides were branded as communists, or not communists, criminals, sorry, which they would still regard the communists as criminals, and they were banned. But under the leadership of Florian Marciniak, this organization called the ZHP would then go underground, and the wartime scouts would then evolve into the paramilitary, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name, but the gray ranks, reporting up through the Polish underground state and the AK or the home army. An interesting thing to note about the organization of the Grey Ranks, the basic unit was the troop, which was comprised of some 20 boys or girls. 
Each troop was composed of several squads, and each squad would comprise of seven persons. Several troops from a specified area, which was like a city district or a village or a town, would form a district, which in turn would form part of a region. And during World War II, several units were referred to by their code names, Banner, District, Troop, and Squad, which was Beehive, Swarm, Family, and Bees. Like, that's, that's what they were called, because that was like the idea, was that they were all going to be bees that were swarming around the Nazis. And that is probably the most kid-friendly way that I've ever heard of naming military units. But these bees were relentless and full of energy. They would protect their family, become a swarm, and then if need to, report back to the beehive. And when all is said and done at the end of the day, they literally taught children the chain of command by using clear and simple logic of how bees operate in the natural world. And this is just another reason why I can easily say that the Polish people are something else. And I mean that in the most positive way possible because, my God, did they do a lot. So, okay. Before the uprising, they had been mainly used in support and specialized roles, but eventually older male scouts carried out sabotage, armed resistance, and assassinations. The girl guides would form auxiliary units working as nurses, uh, liaisons, munition carriers. Younger scouts were involved in so-called minor sabotage under the auspice of the Walwer organization, which included dropping leaflets or painting uh, symbols on walls. But by the time the Germans got orders in order to turn the Warsaw Ghetto into a literal powder, the Jews of Warsaw had suffered incredible losses. And it's at this point that Himmler gets the most sadistic state that he possibly could by ordering that every man, woman, and child in Warsaw is to be killed. The strain of six years of random executions and previous attempts at uprisings or escape inviting swift death had decimated the fighting age men that Poland had to offer. And it's due to this that the gray ranks literally picked up the weapons of their fathers, their uncles, their older brothers, and directly joined in the uprising during the most savage moments of the fighting. They were among the most effective units, and the Germans who had to face these young teenage boys and girls would say that they fought with a tenacity and ferocity that they hadn't seen in seasoned veteran units that were comprised of older battle-hardened men. They would fight their hearts out and would buy valuable time for the Polish to figure out something out because the Nazis then decided, well, hey, if you're going to fight, we're going to burn the entire city down. And that is again where the gray ranks would also shine because they began to be key elements of the evacuation of the ghetto via sewers that ran down below it. And this had always been an absolute last course of action. But as the Germans advanced, they kept using more human shields and forcing the Poles to shoot their own women and children in order to keep fighting the enemy. It was beginning to become clear that they did not just win or could not just win against the superior armed and supplied enemy. They just didn't have enough of anything that were needed to win. They didn't have the men. They didn't have the supplies. They didn't have the allies. They didn't have support. They didn't have resources. They didn't have anything. They were out of options. So they got as many people out as they possibly could. And the gray ranks were responsible for saving the lives of thousands of people, just as they had been trained for, for this very occurrence, to either lead people out or help the AK cover those of their own ranks while they helped lead people out. The people and members of the AK and the gray ranks who stayed to cover the retreat of the rest fought and died like true noble warriors. And the level of courage that they showed in the face of certain death 
would rightfully earn them a place and respect among military service members, strategists, and veterans from all over the world. These were teenagers, literal teenage boys and girls, who fought to a man or to a woman, not even a man or woman, to a child, to defend their people. Classes that are taught at, US, at the U.S. Army War College, where officers learn the finer points of tactics and strategy, still include to this day numerous references to the Warsaw Uprising and their ingenious methods of creating obstructions for the purpose of redirecting the enemy, for literally taking on the enemy house to house and showing what a smaller force can do to a much larger and more well-supplied enemy through nothing but sheer determination and grit. And it's very satisfying to note that when Oscar's unit uh, ended up getting into Warsaw, they were ridiculed by the rest of the SS commanders for literally throwing themselves insanely into battle and then suffering massive amounts of casualties. It turns out that starting with a smaller amount of men than they finished with because they got reinforcements multiple times, that combined with their horrendous losses ended up leaving the unit with a 296% casualty rate. 296. Now you may think, oh my God, how is that possible? How does that make any kind of sense? We're talking, that's more men than they literally have. Yeah, well, here's the funny little thing, right? For context, the U.S. military considers that you, a unit is combat ineffective. Once you suffer a certain amount of losses and your men end up getting pulled from combat and replaced, and that is typically 30%. These guys had 10 times that amount. They lost so many of their own men that had to be replaced that there was a near 300% turnover rate. And it's at this point where a unit just ceases to be operational or effective in any kind of method because there's no proper training or cohesion. Oscar managed to pull a ship of Theseus moment out of a literal unit. Like that whole point where it's like, when does a, sh a ship stop being that old ship because all of its parts are replaced? Because every single man in his unit ended up being replaced with another guy by the end. It suffered 10 times the casualty rate at which the U.S. military would have pulled them out. His casualty rates were surpassed even by teenagers with guns that they picked up from fallen comrades. Eventually, the Poles that could escape did, and those who remained were almost without exception killed or sent to concentration camps to be killed or worked to death. And with it being so close to the end of the war, many of those who weren't immediately killed actually did survive, including many members of the Grey Ranks as well. Even after the Nazis destroyed and drove out the Polish resistance fighters, the physical destruction of the city itself would remain a priority. Himmler would tell his SS officers, quote, the city must completely disappear from the surface of the earth and serve only as a transport station for the Wehrmacht. No stone to remain standing. And after the Red Army would launch the Order of Estula Offensive and arrived in Warsaw after five days of fighting on January 17th, 1945, what they found was a wasteland. A beautiful city over a millennium old had been obliterated, house by house, brick by brick. 30% of the destruction of the now virtually leveled city had taken place after the Polish capitulation to the Germans in the last five months of 1944. As one historian by the name of Alexandria Ritchie would observe, quote, the destruction of Warsaw was unique even in the terrible history of the Second World War and was the only time Hitler actually put into practice the insane notion of erasing an entire capital city. Needless to say, Warsaw would continue to suffer under Soviet control, and Poland itself 
would not gain political independence again until the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union from 1989 to 1991. Now, if you look at Warsaw, that is a city that has been rebuilt brick by brick. Even the presidential palace is a photo-accurate recreation of what it was before the war. Nearly every major older building in Warsaw was recreated in the image of its original pre-war version. That is how determined and resilient the Polish people and the Jews of Poland are. They literally had every single thing taken from them and today have rebuilt their capital with a heavy emphasis on not forgetting what they once lost and how they regained it on their own terms. Brick by brick, blood by blood droplet, every single piece of it came from them. That is the story of the Warsaw Uprising. I know that over the course of this here, primarily it was towards awful. the end. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely been more of me talking here at the end because usually what ends up happening when it's, when, as soon as we got to the part about children, I looked over at you and I was like, okay, she is shutting down now. This is, she's getting the thousand yard stare of horror. Which, I was trying not to cry. No, no, it's completely understandable here. And I don't blame you for that. This is just one of those things that there's a reason why, as horrifying as a story is, this is, why it needs to be told time and time again. Like there is, if people forget that this happened, then who knows? It just knows? never crossed my mind that something like this would happen. So this is one of those things that really d does, does bother me when it comes to things for, say, modern politics and people don't understand context about things and where people don't really look into stuff. Among all the varying states in Europe right now, Poland is one of those that is definitely a little bit more of a outsider, I guess you could say, among the European powers within the, like, the European community. Because a lot of the other states look at Poland's more, I'm not going to use the term conservative, but more, more right-wing-esque, military-supporting, fiercely defensive attitude towards things. They're very cautious. They're like very every Polish person I've ever met is very distrusting. Yes, and very defensive. And you can really see from this why. Poland's history is one of being conquered and destroyed time and time again from outside powers. So why they're so wary of everything. Exactly. And so when people give them a lot of shit when it comes, because I've seen a lot of stuff when it comes to modern politics where people look on them and they just, they don't understand how important the national identity of being Polish is to Poland. That is not something that they ever want to lose again. So I understand it. But with that, I think that we're going to go ahead and end today's episode. It is definitely more of a um, harsh one here, to say the least. But my friends, that is, uh, that's where we're going to leave things off here with the exception of today's, well, reader story. Family history. Family history. Why I say reader story? Reader story. What am I even doing there at that point? But it's a family Nobody history. knows. I don't know. But this one says, hello, my name is Connor Hilbert. You can say, oh, it's a good thing that you say in here in the message that I can say your name. Good. Because I said that from the very beginning without realizing what I was doing. Today, I'd like to tell you about my family, specifically the family that I share my last name with. The Hilbert family was and for a portion of the family is still based in a place called Tingen, Germany, close to the southern border with Switzerland. For the last few centuries, my family has run a mill in town, and this sustained our family, but it wasn't always easy sailing, as one of the dangers of running a mill before modernization 
was the way grain was milled included two giant stone wheels. Well, yeah. As you might have guessed, a danger of the profession was literally getting crushed to death, which happened to one of my ancestors who apparently got his leg caught between the millstones and would succumb to his injuries. Ugh. Other than that, fun tale, because of the way records were kept around the time of Germany's unification, I can't find out much more about that time in my family's history. I'm a fourth-generation American, and I'm lucky to still have my great-grandfather, Edward Hilpert, around who told me that story. This might make my submission a little bit too long, but I really wanted to tell you a little about his life. He was born in 1934 in New York State, the second child of two German immigrants we had met after coming, or who he had, or who had met after coming to America. While growing up, his family moved a lot before settling in Pennsylvania, ah uh, yes, German town, and his father opened a greenhouse, which he worked in until the start of the Korean War, where he was stationed in Germany along with the famous person Elvis Presley. While my grandpa never met him, he told me a story about how one of his friends took his car to go meet Elvis and returned with his car that had been autographed. And so his friend got his car autographed by Elvis. After the war, he met my great-grandmother, Patricia, who worked at a diner. They got married, had kids. He took over the greenhouse after his father retired and continued to prosper. Eventually, the greenhouses were closed with the rise in gas prices making the business unstable. But he then retired and continued to spend his time around his family, which had grown very large even after the passing of my grandma a few years ago. I'm sorry if this was too long, and I hope you have a wonderful day, and I hope you're willing to share part of my family's history, which I hold dear. Thank you, Connor Hilbert. Well, Connor, that is a nice little story, and thank you very much for sharing that. I greatly appreciate it. And if anyone else wants to send in their own family histories, then by all means, send them in to us. You can check the contact information here for the History of Everything podcast website. And by all means, please continue to send in your stories. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. I hope you all have a good rest of your day. Make sure to leave us a review if you possibly can. And simultaneously, don't forget to check out all of our links from Patreon for extra episodes to our travel links, coffee, etc. Everything down there that you can do to support us. And I hope you all have a good rest of your day. Thank you, everyone. And goodbye. Bye. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.